The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. You know, you come to a place like this, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this. You come and you hear bits of teachings here, and you hear bits of teachings there, and hopefully they kind of fit and start to make sense, but sometimes it can seem like you're not getting the overall picture. How does it all fit together? And you want to, and that can take time. Uh, and even if you go back to the old source texts, and we'll say a little bit about that actually, uh, we're going to do a touch on the history, but not too much. Um, there's not one place that lays it all out together in a structured way. So it, it, it's all there, but it can take some doing to pull it together. So the idea of this five weeks is to do a pretty good, thorough, structured overview, but actually to go into the material of Dharma teachings and bring the practice piece in too. So the way the five weeks will work is we will start with, we'll start with the teachings part tonight and over the next week, and then about halfway through, we'll start to bring in actually the practice the practices more in the end. And we'll have the context within the, which to hold why we practice. You may not need a bunch of teachings to tell you why you practice. Perhaps many of you, you come for your own reasons, which is fine. But we'll set a, the traditional context for, what, for where it's aiming. So that's the idea. There's a lot of... And the way I'd like to do this is I have things in mind each week. I've, I've actually put a fair amount of thought into this because it's a... It's a, it is an ambitious undertaking, but I think we can pull it off. Uh, there's not just one way to approach it. The idea I had was to start at the, quote, the beginning of the teachings and work your way through. But the question then quickly becomes, as you'll see for yourself, if, uh, it, where, where's the beginning? There's not just one beginning place. So you could come into this in a lot of different ways. I'm going to approach it in one particular way. Um, which is to, well, I won't explain it, I'll just do it, and then we'll, we'll see. So what, what, I, what I think will work well is, I've got plenty of things, I can talk all the way to the end, and that's fine, but I'd actually like to do this a little bit differently than you may be used to in, in a typical Dharma talk when you come to a group like this. Normally, there's, it's quite structured. We have this, the sitting period, silent sitting, and then there's some kind of talk, and then they'll, they will formally open it up for discussion. We're kind of going to keep that structure, but actually I want to invite you, if any time you want, just raise your hand any time, even if I'm talking. I think that interactive can add a lot in there, and I'll take responsibility to try and keep us on track and not let us get off too much. So there's, any questions are, are fine. Um, I do think they're recording, so if you do uh, want to say anything, we'll send the mic around to you, okay? So just use your own judgment on that. Okay. So um, in Buddhist teachings, there's this idea of enlightenment. And the term, we don't use that term around here much, but you'll hear the term nirvana, that's the Sanskrit, or in the Pali language, our, our, uh, the, our tradition is pre been, was preserved in Pali, um, they'll use, it, it's Nibbana, Nirvana Sanskrit, Nibbana in Pali, the same thing. And so the idea was to realize or achieve or attain this Nirvana, this Nibbana. Problem is that at least in the earliest schools of Buddhism, this isn't so true for later developments in Buddhism like some of the Zen or some of the Tibetans so much, but in the early Buddhist traditions from which, our, which we practice in, um, nirvana wasn't defined. The Buddha was quite explicit about it. It's ineffable, meaning it's beyond verbal conceptual categories. So you can point towards this, whatever this transcendent, ultimate, reality or deepest truths, if you will, are. But anything we say about it 
falls short because of, of the thing itself. You, you can point to it, but words just can't get us there. So the Buddha, then there's plenty of things, and we may get to talk about a little bit, would point towards this nirvana, but it's kind of left, you can, we, it's intentionally left undefined. We'll talk later, it's actually not quite true because there is a concept of what, what, it, what is this enlightenment if, say, you're the Buddha, he attained his enlightenment and then he, he had his teaching career uh, for uh, 45 more years, but he hadn't died, so that's a kind of enlightenment. You're still alive, and then what does it look like after the Buddha dies? It's, it's really the after you die part that was left undefined. We can say a little more about what that may be um, while you're still alive. So that's, that's, I say that because you'll notice as we start in the teachings, you'll notice it tonight, most of the time we're going to spend on, it's very down-to-earth and practical teachings. It's not based on belief systems. Now there are a lot that may be belief and faith if you haven't realized them for yourself, but everything that we're going to be talking about, it's, they're all teachings that can be investigated, explored, and, and come to directly be realized for ourselves. Right? So the part of belief systems is really left out a lot and they're actually practical down-to-earth teachings, right? And the reason for that is because that's really all we have. We have our bodies, our minds, our experience, and there's all how we think and speak and act. And so the Buddha was pointing to how to live, how to practice, how to train our minds in ways that lead towards if you want to call it, I, I personally like the word enlightenment. Maybe some people don't like it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But head towards, let's just call it, pick the words you like best. Freedom, we'll define that. What does that mean later? We'll define that. Awakening, clarity, peace, deeper places of well-being and happiness or enlightenment, if you will. Liberation is a word that's sometimes used. All of these are good, word, good adjectives. We're pointing towards something and, and practicing, learning specific ways, starting just where we're at. And the good news, about, as you'll see about these teachings, is you don't have to be any better at this than you are. You don't have to be any good at, how, at meditating. Right? You know, if you were learning to play the piano and you never played, you wouldn't expect to go to your first day, the lesson, and have any skill at all. Right? You just wouldn't. It's amazing how often, though, we come to something like meditation and we sit down to meditate and we realize our minds aren't trained, it's difficult, and we start to beat ourselves up. Somehow we think we're supposed to be better at it. I don't know what, why that happens, but it may not happen f- for you, but it's, it's, it's not uncommon. You don't have to have any skill. If you're heading towards opening your heart in love and compassion, and we'll see how that fits into the teachings, you actually don't have to be any more loving and compassionate than you are. You can actually be quite grouchy. It's okay. It's good news. Or you can have an aversive mind. It's fine. We just start where we're at. So we can relax. We don't have to get into the judging ourselves or criticizing ourselves. Some of our minds are programmed to do that. We start where we're at. We will we'll go into these teachings and we do just start to apply the teachings if they resonate for us, if they make sense for us. And we look to see what the fruits in our lives are for ourselves. Right? So these are practical applied teachings. It's not metaphysics. And in fact, there are many stories of people coming to the the Buddha and asking what we would term metaphysical questions. They're the great philosophical, religious, spiritual questions that come up in all religious traditions. 
the kind of questions that really are unanswerable. Unans- they would be the equivalent, we don't use the word God really in Buddhism, but it'd be the equivalent of asking like, what's the nature of God? How did, how did all this get going? Existence itself, how did it get started? What's going on? That kind of thing. And the Buddha refused to answer those questions. There's a number of stories. And then later when he was asked about it, they'd say, well, why didn't you answer? He said, and, and um, there's a famous simile that's used, which is called the simile of the poisoned arrow. So this is our starting point. Now we're moving into the, into the teachings. This, I'm going to start with the simile of the poisoned arrow. And it's one of a number of stories. Someone comes to the Buddha with these kind of questions, these metaphysical questions. I won't give you the list of questions. Buddha didn't answer. And the Buddha said, it's like someone was shot with a, a poisoned arrow. And before they would let someone take the arrow out, they had all these questions. Who shot me? What was their clan or their family? What, was the, what kind of material did they use to make the arrow? What kind of feathers? Were they crouching behind a bush? Were they, all these questions. Even if, first of all, by the time you could answer all those questions, the person would die. And even if you could answer all the questions, it's not going to do you any good. What's needed is you need to get the arrow out and the poison out. That's what's needed. And so the Buddha said, in the same way, I'm not interested in going there. I'm interested in the human condition and what's needed, which is, and the way they summarized it is, will come later, not tonight, into what's called the Four Noble Truths. People often start with the Four Noble Truths. I think we need some background first to really understand the Four Noble Truths. That's probably will come next week. But basically, basically, as you'll see when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, one way that, that this enlightenment is talked about is very simply as an end of suffering. And some people may say, well, that sounds great to come to an end of suffering, but is that the highest, deepest truths? Well, we're going to look at that exact question. That's something that's not metaphysical that we can look at directly on what they mean. He's saying we're here in the human condition, What's needed? What do we need to do? That's, and, and that's the place we want to start. So tonight I want to begin with, the, you know, when we think about what it is to the human condition, it could be talked about in many ways. Here's a few ways that Buddhism, the Buddha tended to focus on it. Okay. Um, I'll give you another story that's preserved, teaching story that's preserved in the old texts. The Buddha is with a king, and they're having whatever kind of talk. And then the the Buddha is asking, "Well, what are, what are you? What have you been doing?" Asked the king, and said, "Well, I've been doing all the things that kings do. I've been running. I've been in running the kingdom, and engaged in affairs. I've been engaged in my personal life." And he just goes through all this list of what he's been doing. And the Buddha said, "What would you do if someone came to you, someone a trusted minister, and said?" From the, direct, from the northern direction, there's a mountain, and it's you know, as high as the clouds. You know, couldn't go over it. And, it. and it goes in both directions as far as the eye can see. And it's just moving, coming towards us, and it's crushing everything in its path. And then other ministers came from the other three directions. And from all four directions, these mountains were coming, crushing in. So there's no escape. And it was going to crush out everything. And, and then the Buddha said, in the same way, death is coming in. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. Coming in on all of us. And these reflections on death are... Um, it's a big part in Buddhism. And sometimes people think Buddhists are being kind of pessimistic boy, you guys talk about death a lot. It's not all they talk about at all. But Buddhists don't, the Buddha didn't consider himself a pessimist. He considered himself just a realist. And so it's not the whole story, 
but the reflection on death is something that the Buddha said is very important. In fact, he said it's something that we should spend a little time, at least every day, reflecting on. So even though we'll be working through kind of a, um, an intellectual understanding of the teachings over these five weeks, I just want to pepper in throughout the five weeks the practice piece. So, so just take a few moments, even as I'm mentioning death, as I'm shining a light on the fact that it's going to happen to everyone, just notice what, if anything, comes up for you. That's all. We're not trying to, the Buddha's not trying to, you know, ruin your day or bum you out (laughs) or make us be morose or depressed. Remember, this is a teaching coming to an end of suffering and it's called... Again, they're using these adjectives trying to point towards something. It's not the thing itself, but they call it the highest peace, the highest happiness. These, it doesn't sound bad. How might it serve us to reflect on one of the truths of the human condition is, is that life is, you know, that, that death is a part of life. You know, for some people, maybe it, you get afraid or... I don't know. So that's something just to reflect on. We'll, we'll have plenty of time to come back to that. That's a, a big reflection. The important thing is to notice how does that awareness and keeping that awareness in mind, how does that affect how you live? The priorities you set in your life. Right? For myself, when I reflect on teachings of death, it, it doesn't, and so notice however it is for you, it's, it may be different for all of us, for myself, it doesn't make me stop living my life, being engaged in the world, having your families and your jobs and everything that we do. I notice for myself that I tend to hold myself and others even with more preciously. That's what happens for me. You know, people I'm really, that maybe are difficult or challenging or situations, I think, you know, that person is going to die. I'm going to die. And going back as a good teaching story is what the king answered when he reflected on, you know, this image of these four mountains and that, and with death, he said, the king could have said anything. He could have, who knows what really happened, but uh, you know, in the story, the, the, the kid he could say, well, I'm just going to get as much pleasure as I can while I can because life is short. That, that's an answer someone could give. Probably some people would. From a Dharma perspective, the king said, given that fact, there's, the only thing that makes sense to me, to him to do, is to live with love and compassion and kindness and wisdom to, to aim his life towards whatever the highest or is for himself. That was just the only thing that made sense. That resonates for me tr- too. It's just why, I don't know, it does. So you notice for yourself when you reflect on these things we're talking about. Because what we want to keep in mind is what's important to us in our lives. We want these teachings to inform the choices we make. Right? And we don't want to get panicked Everything's okay. But there are certain truths we want to consider when we're deciding what is it we want our life to really be about in the deepest and highest sense. That's a reflection I think is worthy of all of us at some points to really think back. What do I really want my life to be about? Doesn't mean you'll never waste time. I'll give you an example. Today... um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've done these reflections many, many times, and I'm pretty clear on what my life's about in the highest sense. And then I have a grown daughter, and I also have a three-year-old son, so they were together in the back room today, and I hear all this laughter, and I go back, and our computer has a, we have Skype, which is a, and a, and a video camera, so you can do video telephone calls, and the particular video camera software has these, they're really funny, um, um, effects so it'll it knows how to recognize a face 
So my three-year-old son's there. And then you can, and it'll like make a hat be on your head. It'll put a beard on you, glasses. And it's really, it's really pretty funny. So we're just cracking up laughing. I'm noticing, you know, we're just wasting time. Not really, because I guess laughter is good medicine, right? We were just back there just going, ha, 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 let's put a funny hat. So, you know, we don't ha- we, it's not that we're going to get all serious about our life all the time, but in the big picture, we want to know what, what, what's going to inform us. So this is one piece, big piece, about that certainty for all of us in life. Okay. And we can reflect what's really important. Well, there's a few other ways we can look at the human condition also. So the Buddha, really a lot, and we'll see this in meditation practice, is asking us to, to really look closely at the nature of our own minds, our own bodies, the world, all experience. Notice again, these aren't transcendent metaphysical things. We're actually looking at, when we say the nature of reality, it's what can be known and experienced. And so when we look at, if you look closely and deeply into the nature of all experience, what you see is what's called, and so sometimes there's these lists, there's the four this, we already talked four noble truths, we'll see there's this thing called the Eightfold Path. Here's a list, the three, what's called, and it's got a pretty heavyweight sounding name, but it's not too bad when we really explore what it means. Three characteristics of existence. Three char- so what it means is three characteristics of, of all experience. And I'm going to name them quick, quickly, and then I'm going to say a little more about them. A few of these we'll have to fill out later about, but tonight you'll get the basic idea. The first of these is impermanence. And it's asking us to, to reflect deeply and clearly, just like we were doing on, on death, impermanences, that's, that's, that's part of, really it's connected with, with impermanence and death are connected. But what it's saying is um, what we already know. Nothing lasts. There's no experience that you can have that's going to last. Have you ever, is there any experience you've ever had that didn't change? Ever? Think about, you know, whether it's been a a painful, unpleasant experience or whether it's been a pleasant, wonderful experience. Things change. It's not being pessimistic to say, oh, when good things happen, don't worry, it's going to go bad. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying things change. And it's asking us to, to really come to perceive this, to understand this directly. We all understand it intellectually. Everyone here knows that, right? The sun's not going to last forever. The earth won't last forever. Physicists say, I'm not a physicist, but I read some of the books written for lay people, you know, black holes. They don't last forever. Given a very, very, very long time due to quantum effects, they'll actually evaporate away too. Nothing. So we all know that. We go, well, wait a minute. You're not going to last forever. That's one thing. But, and by the way, the, it's not bad. It's just the way life is. So when these things happen, it's not that something's going wrong. It's just what happens. Right? One of the big teachings and the big, that, that by reflecting on this, we start to see how much our suffering is created by clinging We'll spend a lot of time talking about this, clinging to wanting to hold on to pleasant experiences and push away unpleasant. Um, this will get into the Four Noble Truths more. But, um, um, you know, these pleasant and unpleasant are coming and going all the time and changing. So it's, it's a characteristic of all experience. That's one. I want to come back and spend more time on that in a few minutes. Let me name the other two characteristics. So impermanence, things are in constant change, or another way to think of it is nothing's going to last. No experience. The second no truth is what's sometimes misunderstood, and we, we say it's the truth of suffering. And it is 
often said, and this is inaccurate, I'm going to clarify it right now, that you know, Buddhism says life is suffering. It, it's not accurate. We, we tend to use the word, so you're going to hear it said like that many times, but we want to understand what was actually said. So a particular word in the Pali language, you don't have to know any Pali, but let me just tell you what it is and explain what it means. It's dukkha, D-U-K-H-A, dukkha. And dukkha is the word that's translated suffering. Buddha did say life is dukkha. Suffering is not the best translation. I think it's a poor translation for dukkha. What dukkha actually, so it includes suffering. It, it, the, the, if you go back sort of uh, the, the root meaning of the word, sort of the etymology of it, means a wheel that's out of, where the axle's off kilter, out of balance. It's not perfectly round. And, and what happens if you're, of a cart, wheel of a cart, what happens if, you, if you're riding in a cart and one of the wheels is off? It's a bumpy ride. What it's saying is life, you know, it has ups and downs. A better, a better single word would either be, could be unsatisfactory or unreliable. Why? Because even, even getting what you want is considered dukkha. Getting what you, what, you, what you don't want is dukkha. That's pain and suffering. But even getting what you want is, is dukkha because of the first noble truth. It doesn't last. Right? If you could set your life up, something that you may or may not be clear about what this is, but suppose you could imagine your dream perfect life. Sometimes it's fuzzy. We kind of don't really know. But, you know, even if you could do that, and even if you could attain it, that's asking a lot. And even if it's stuck around for a while, look, that would be, it would feel good, you would have a pleasant experience. I'm not denying that. It, so we're not saying it doesn't provide benefit. We're saying it's not ultimately going to solve your problem because it won't last forever. In the end, it all falls apart. If nothing else, it's that very first reflection on death. If nothing else. So if we're looking, and this is really getting into the key, if we're looking to any experience to do it for us, it's a setup either for suffering or potential future suffering. Right? So this first noble truth impermanence, the second one, we'll say suffering, but unsatisfactory or unreliable. Unsatisfactory in the sense I was just talking about. Unreliable is another one in that, look, we're all, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're all actively trying to head our lives in the directions we want. We want to, every one of us here wants to have more of more of the experiences or more of what we want in life. We want to have more pleasant experiences, we have less unpleasant in our lives. Right? No one here is trying to have less of what you want and more of what you don't want in your life. No one. It's not, you're not doing anything wrong. I think that's being a human being. Probably aren't going to stop. It's not a problem, except for one thing. We all know that despite our best efforts, and God knows we're trying. We don't have God in Buddhism, but it was just an expression. <laughs> we're all trying. Sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you get what you don't want, or you don't get what you want. Part of this liberation that the Buddha is talking about one way, this is getting a little ahead of tonight, but I'll just give you a little hint, is called a liberation through non-clinging. The problem isn't so much the experience itself. Pleasant and unpleasant come and go, and if you get unpleasant experiences, that, that is a suffering. But the real suffering is how are we relating to whatever experience is happening. And so we start, through, as we'll see in practice, turning our attention to... to not that we stop paying attention to caring for ourselves and our lives, but we want to add in the piece of, of the piece that most of us don't tend to so much. How are we relating to whatever's happening in our lives?
this place of liberation or freedom that we're talking about is a place that rests at peace in the midst, because it, it knows, it's, it's aware, it, it sees, perceives deeply this truth of impermanence. When we come to realize that deeply, and that's a lot of what meditation practice is about, is seeing, perceiving, or understanding deeply the true nature of things, part of what we perceive more and more is the truth of impermanence. And then our contraction, our grasping or clinging on to hold on to pleasant starts to loosen itself because we see that it doesn't, they don't last anyway. When, when pleasant experiences are here, it feels pleasant. We're not going to lose that. You don't have to push that away or throw it away. But we don't have to you know, contract around it and, and tense up and try to hold on to it and panic when it's going to go away. Things are going to change. And when unpleasant experiences arise, we still experience them. They don't magically turn into butterflies and they're pleasant. No, unpleasant is unpleasant. But it's known clearly for what it is. It's just changing experiences that come and go. And underneath all of that, there's a place of stillness, of peace, of freedom that rests in pure knowing, pure awareness. It's clear, but it's not in this reactivity. So a lot of the practices are about uh, learning to, to calm the mind down so we get into these places of concentration and peace and stillness and all of that, opening the heart, but also the clarity of seeing or knowing or perceiving the truth of uh, all experience. Right? So, uh, characteristic of impermanence, second characteristic of, we'll say, suffering, Third characteristic is, now this one we're going to get into more next week, but I'll point to it a little bit tonight, is what's called, uh, is also misunderstood, no self. This is a biggie in Buddhism of no self. So we need to understand what that means. It doesn't mean you don't exist. Because we all, right? You're all here. When you realize no self, you don't go poof and disappear. So this, this translation of that term, no self, is, it's kind of like that one about suffering. It's, it's not so accurate. A bit, we'll continue to use the term, but we want to know what it's really pointing to is what's the nature of our being? And what we come to see, those first two characteristics, especially impermanence, it applies to everything. It applies to ourself, our own being. Again, we'll get into more next week in a little more detail. So for right now, we'll just... Let's just leave it that what we come to know is that the nature of our own being is, is that we're not, we're changing processes, if you will. We're conscious river of being that's in, in constant change. And as you, we can come to know this for ourselves as you, through our practice, as we delve deeply into our own minds and bodies, you, you, you can't hit a bottom, our whole being is a changing process, a conscious process. We'll, we'll flush that out a little more, a lot more next week. Just leave it at that for now. Right? But that's important because, again, what are the ways that we create suffering? We get identified with our minds and bodies, and okay, well, this is me. It's kind of a, a small sense of identification, right? Well, what is true about our bodies? A lot of things are true about them. They're going to get older. That process is going to continue. Till we've already talked about wh where it ends up. We already know that. If we're identified with and clinging to our bodies being a certain way, it's a setup for suffering. We know ahead of time what's going to happen. We don't live our lives as if it's true. So we're being asked to reflect on these things. This is all part of this human condition that we find ourselves in. 
right? What the Buddha is saying is, is that we, this idea of clinging, we get identified with certain things as, this, of, of, as self, but they, 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 it's, they all change. Rather than get panicked about it, the question for all of us is, is it really possible? So this is the exploration. Is it po- that we can come to find out for ourselves, not just as, as, a, as a question, to really explore, is it actually possible to come to a place of profound peace or happiness or well-being that's uh, in the face of just the human condition of the way things are. We don't have to change the way things are. Can we come to a liberation or freedom in the midst of the way things are? Given the fact that things are changing, that really, ultimately, um, I don't want to go so far as to say there's no security anywhere. I don't want to scare anybody. But, let's just put it this way. Can't get, there's no guarantees out there, right? That can feel a little... And, and, if, and if we're putting our stocking, our putting our... looking for our refuge in the world, in having certain experiences and setting our lives up to look a certain way, it's not a very reliable refuge. One thing you'll hear about sometimes is what's called the three refuges. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha was this historical Buddha who was a teacher. We're not worshiping him, but just looking to that and the Dharma in the sense of the teachings and the Sangha, the community of practitioners. What it's saying is that what most, when we think of a refuge, what's a refuge? Refuge is a place we look to for safety, for shelter, to be okay, to, or our, our well-being, if you will. And what Buddhist teachings are saying is, is that in any, what we use the term conditions, if we're looking to our refuge in conditions, because conditions change, this concept of conditions we'll keep coming back to change. If we're looking for our happiness or for our well-being in any conditions, again, it's a setup for potential suffering because things change, it's not reliable. Is there a reliable refuge that's independent of conditions? So things are changing, pleasant, unpleasant, come and go. Yes, we want to still take care of ourselves and our lives aim ourselves in whatever way we want. We're not going to stop doing that. None of that goes away. But can we start to also find that place of freedom? That's That's real freedom. Freedom is not getting to do what you want when you want. That's kind of a freedom. There's a deeper freedom, which is the place that rests at peace. That's, you know, this cliche of inner peace. That re- it's, 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 it's not, it shouldn't be a cliche. I mean, it's just used a lot around meditation, but it's just because we say it a lot. That's what it's talking about. It's not dependent on circumstances so much. It's more about how we're relating to whatever's happening, not the experience itself. That's what's being pointed to. The experiences themselves come and go. So these teachings of impermanence, closely connected unsatisfactoriness, and this no-self I know that's a tricky one for many people, like, what's that? But um, that's the situation we find ourselves in. By the way, what I just said is already kind of a little contradictory, but it's just the limitations of language a little bit. I say we find our... First of all, I'm saying, what's the nature of ourselves? I'm saying, well, we're changing processes. What the heck does that mean? So we have to explore that. But I'm also saying we find ourselves in this situation. So I'm being a little sloppy with language. But I hope you get the basic idea. How did we get here? I don't know. The Buddha specifically said there was a list of what was called imponderables, things that don't even try to figure it out. You can't. It's, you just can't. You wouldn't ever be able to. And one of them is how did all this get started? 
the beginning of you know, existence itself. That's considered an imponderable. It would be like the poisoned arrow. What the Buddha is saying is, can we learn, asking is, can we learn to live and act and be in ways that free us from the, our reactive patterns of, you know, pleasant experience comes, we want more of that. And it may not be conscious, it just may be, yep, life's great. <laughs> we're either complacent or we're really clinging on to it. And so we, we're, that's called the, the euphemism for it is greed. But it's kind of a hard word. But greed is just, it just comprises the full range of really greed, what we think of as greed, and even just wanting, pulling pleasant experiences in. I don't know if that's a problem if you're walking in a nice day and you see a beautiful flower and you come in and appreciate the beauty. I mean, yes, it is an attraction towards pleasant, but it's not a problem because you just let it go and move on, so it's not creating a problem in our lives. So it's not saying every tendency like that is, creates a problem, but we can certainly see in our lives the many ways that it does create problems. We're led around by, by our wants, our wishes, our desires, and the flip side is to get away from unpleasant keep them from happening when they are here. The reactive is just to push it away rather than to, to, I mean, if there's really something we need to do to take care of ourselves, that's one thing. But a lot of our suffering is just created in our minds because we just don't like what's happening. It's not the experience, it's our minds. I'll give you a perfect example. This may have happened to you tonight, but it certainly will happen probably to everyone at some time, brother. You're sitting here meditating and so I've had, I can remember having times, uh, thinking back in meditation, I was having a great meditation. I was judging it, great means it was pleasant. That's all. Bell rings, and I just think, oh, I'm just going to sit here for another, I don't want to get up yet, I'll sit here for another 5, 10, 15 minutes. Not so many times do we, are we struggling in the meditation, can't wait for the bell to ring, our bodies hurt, we either are sleepy or we can't sit still or whatever's going on and the bell rings and we say, you know, body hurts, suffering. I think I'll sit here for another 5, 10, 15 minutes. No. It's a big shift when we start getting interested in our suffering. It took many years in my practice where I actually started getting interested. Wow, what's going on right here? See, we often judge our meditation by how pleasant or unpleasant it is. But when you're sitting here, the idea isn't to just have a pleasant experience, even if you're struggling. And all of us will have plenty of times when that happens. Especially earlier in practice when our minds aren't trained. And we don't, you know, people keep talking about, oh, what's this bliss I keep hearing about? This inner peace. I'm not getting any inner peace. It's hard to, to sit and meditate. That can happen at any stage, but even especially if our minds aren't trained and we haven't tasted that sweetness of some of these deeper uh, places that, can, that we touch that are important in meditation. And we judge our practice by that. But it took a long time to come to the place where I, um, when the suffering would come, rather than just react and try, I got to oh, get out of it or change it, um, to where I could get interested in what's going on in the mind here. Wow, oh yeah, unpleasant. Wow, look what's happening in the mind. It's reacting. You know, there's a lot of information there. Whatever's happening in your experience is fine. It's just what's happening. And if we can start to see it as our teacher, giving us information about, what's, about how our minds create suffering, any moment is a learning. You know? I have an aspiration to live in a way that uh, no, no one is ever shut out of my heart. That's a real aspiration I have, ever. So every time someone's shut out of my heart <laughs> or an unkind thought comes, I don't need to beat myself up. That's telling me something. Oh, this is my aspiration. Ah, here's a place where more work needs to be done. I'd rather see it than not see it. It's actually, I, it's, 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 I view it as my teacher. Have you ever had a time in meditation? You're sitting here and you're struggling 
you know, you can't wait for the bell to ring, and then you hear. And before you've even moved, the mind just goes, ah, and there's a big relaxation. And all of a sudden, you're not suffering. You haven't even moved. That's an interesting place to notice that your suffering wasn't the experience. It was, it was what was happening in your mind. And somehow you hear this ring of the bell and a letting go happened in the mind and you were at peace and happy and felt good. That's pointing towards the liberation through non-clinging that we're pointing to. The inner peace that can carry through any experiences. That's a perfect place right there where you've experienced it. The letting go in the mind. So what the Buddhism is, the Buddha's pointing to is this place of, of this non-clinging, or we say letting go, or letting be, in a deep, profound sense, in the midst of the human condition, where we don't have to have someone ring a bell for us, where actually it becomes more cultivated and, and our ability deepens. Okay. So that's all really the main theme for this evening around sort of the human condition and the way it's pointed to in a way that you notice everything we've talked about has been practical. Practical. How we're actually living and relating to our experience. So I'm just going to stop here for now and we just have a few minutes. I wonder if anyone has any, if question is fine or comments. If not, that's fine, but um, yes. I don't really have a question, just a comment. Um, just recently, I've noticed uh, my moods or experiences or whatever are just changing throughout the day because I'm really paying more attention. And... Um, it's just really interesting. They just change throughout the day from one extreme to another, you know, or not terribly extreme, but, you know, that's all. So I'm beginning to appreciate the idea of um, that I've heard of talked in these rooms, equanimity. Right. Yes. That's all I just want to say. Great. Well, I appreciate that. And, of course, how our experience changes, how it swings is going to vary for each of us. And how much we notice what's going on is something that develops over time. And this idea of equanimity is very important. That's really a place that we're, that we're talking about heading towards. And, of course, when we talk about equanimity, I just want to fill it out a little bit. We want to be clear. Equanimity, there's a couple of ways it can look like. One is that sometimes it means people, it's, it's sort of the ups and downs of our experience smooth out, and we're just kind of in this... It's, I think this. I think of it a smoothed out place. So that's one kind of equanimity, where the experience itself is not up and down so much, and that's a kind of peace or calmness. And then, which is dependent upon conditions. The condition being experience is not going up and down all over the place. There's the unconditioned equanimity which is kind of what you're pointing to, which is our experiences, we can have the full range of our experiences, they can be up and down and all over the place. And the equanimity is our relationship to those, even if we can be very excited or we can feel you know, depressed or it can be all sad or angry or joyful, ecstatic, whatever, and everything in between. And again, we keep, I keep talking about there's a deeper place where we rest at peace, or it's a place of non-reactivity. We still experience everything, but we're not jerked around by it so much. And what happens then is, rather than the way so many of us typically are reactive in a situation, we now have the space to be responsive in a situation rather than reactive. So thank you very much. Yes. Um, there is a consistency that happens and is always good when I come here to this place and listen to the teachings. Um, so let's see. So everything changes. It's something about it that doesn't change. I'm accepting of the, of the good and the bad, and, and I always go out feeling really filled 
and I always want to reflect on everything that happens here, but it's always consistently worthwhile. <clears throat> so, to, so for me, that doesn't change. It never has changed, oh. no matter who's teaching. Well, that's nice to know. You know, you haven't ever heard a bad Dharma talk. <laughs> yeah. But that also says a lot about, um, I know, I've given bad Dharma talks here, so I know they happen. How do you uh, know they're bad? Well, I'm just being a little humorous. I'm just trying oh. to be humorous. <laughs> of course, not. Could, but uh, my, my point is, um, I think it says a lot about your listening, your presence, how you're receiving it. Because there may be other people who wouldn't necessarily say that, have that same experience. We're going to have a quite wide range of experiences. Well, so I'm just pointing to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to the purity of your, your heart and mind and how you're taking it in. Well, some are strange. <laughs> you know, they are strange, but that's good, you know, isn't it? I'm saying so. That, that's pointing to something about your mind, to even ones that might be strange. Your mind tends to look towards... What can I take away from this? What, what will serve me? What's, what's, where's the meaning or what can I reflect on here? Mm-hmm. That's isn't, beautiful. Isn't that what we're supposed to I mean, that's what works. It sounds great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. <laughs> okay. So this is consistent for me. This, yeah. this is rather permanent. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I hope it doesn't go away now that I said it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if it does, you can just notice what happens in your own mind. I'm clinging to it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, so we have time for one or, one or two more, and then we'll do a short ending. Um, just to follow up on that, um, that made me think about the concept of the sangha that you referred to. And uh, I don't really want to get into it too much now, but I'm wondering, are you going to talk more about the three refuges in further depth in the coming weeks? Um, possibly to talk about the three refuges when we, um, when we talk about practice more. I think that that's falls into the practice side. So um, um, I, I haven't thought it through much, but I, we can bring it in some more to talk about. Um, okay, yeah. maybe, maybe just as a follow-up to that comment, maybe I'll just ask a little mini question about it then, if it, in case it doesn't come up, is um, I think w- what I heard in the question there, in the comment there, was um, was taking refuge in the Sangha to some degree, coming here to this place and this community and feeling good about it. Um, and that, to me, seems like it's dependent upon conditions. Right. Um, so maybe can you, can you talk a little bit about how that, that refuge could be dependent upon your environment? Right. Well, yes, no question about it. Look, everything's dependent upon conditions. And so what we're doing is we're using conditions to, to strengthen the conditioning of our mind to head us in a direction that ultimately is, uh, comes to a place that's indep- beyond, independent of conditions. That's right. but, but all we have the whole, the, is the world of con- the conditioned world. Condition meaning subject to these three characteristics that we talk about here, right? So, and, you know, and, and, and I didn't get into that much tonight, but this t- this, and I wasn't planning to too much here, but this teaching on conditionality is huge in Buddhist teachings, and I'll just leave it at this. These three characteristics, you know, we're saying experiences are just coming and going, everything's happening, changing. It's not happening just for no reason. They're happening due to causes and conditions. Right? So stating what we may say, well, that's the obvious. But this is important, because given that, then, we want to reflect on these teachings and strengthen the conditions for more happiness, for more peace, for less suffering, for more liberation. So that's this idea of where we want to head and diminish or weaken through disuse the conditions that, that pull us back into our suffering, which is our habitual tendings to grasping and clinging towards pleasant and pushing away unpleasant. So then what will be supportive of that then is, and this is, I'll just pick any example. So for example, well, I don't know, say there's the, um, you know, you could have done anything this evening, right? You chose to come here. Maybe, maybe it's because you're a practitioner, you want to, you're interested in the topic, you just want to meditate. Maybe your friend just brought you and you didn't even know, but even that was, there was a little something enough in your mind that, oh, it's a Buddhist meditation group that would be interested. You know, you could have done anything. So, for example, 
I'm not a big professional sports fan, but I'm aware that the San Francisco Giants are, I don't know if they won tonight or not. Does anybody know? So somebody must have their uh, smartphone here with it. Get the score. They lost? Four to two. Okay. Right, so there you go. What happened in your mind when you... <laughs> it's a good Dharma teaching, right? So they got two more shots at it, right? So, so even, you know, it's just the whole Bay Area gets into it. So I'm just, I'm into it a little bit, you know, just not really, but a little bit. So um, you could have, for those of you, say, if you're into baseball or you can pick anything else, you could have gone down to the sports bar tonight or with your friends. And I'm not judging it. It wouldn't be a bad thing to do. And would have, but it would have been about something specific. It would have been about your love of baseball, the camaraderie that comes with you know having beers or whatever with your. It would have been about something specific, and it would have been in service of that. If we are serious about anything in our lives, so here we're talking about Dharma, and we really want to not just as a good idea, but at, we want to actualize these teachings. Not just read about other people getting enlightened, but how can we, in the midst of our lives, actually come to a, 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 a depth of realization for ourselves? Not just as, an, as a concept. Then we need to be around supportive conditions that will aim us towards that. And so one way, an important piece of that is what's called sangha, community. And... Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, it's considered, um, it's a big deal. Let's just put it that way. It's one of these, this three refuges, which are also sometimes called the uh, three jewels or the triple gem song. In fact, there's the story where um, someone says to the Buddha, you know, it's wonderful, it's marvelous that the sangha, that community, is fully half of the holy life. They use the word holy life, the spiritual life. And the Buddha said, that's not true, don't say that. Sangha is the entirety of the holy life. So this support, and maybe that's a good place to end, I'll just ask you to look into your own life. What we talk about in these Dharma teachings are conceptually, they're not complicated. I'm guessing what we said tonight is simple to understand. Not so easy to, to, live, to live it because the conditioned patterns of our mind go deep, right? We only have to look at how we've been, and again, I'm making a generalization. I don't think there's anyone here I know well, so it it may not fit exactly, but I have have a suspicion that it fits probably pretty well for most of us here. What have we been doing for most of our lives? We haven't done anything wrong. We've been doing our best. We're good-hearted, sincere people, but we've been trying to... Just we've been tending to setting up the conditions of our lives and having it, our lives head in this direction and not in that direction. Get what we want. How can I not have this happen? That's what we've been tending to. We haven't been tending to how we relate to our experience, liberating the mind through clinging, through non-clinging, as we're talking about a little tonight. So it shouldn't surprise us that those habitual patterns run quite deep. And so as we, it's like if you start to turn one of those big oil tankers that's as long as a few football fields. You know, you, you don't just turn it instantly. You have to plan ahead and you start turning. There's a lot of momentum heading in a certain direction. But you start to turn and it starts to, that thing lumbers around and it comes around. But once you're heading in a new direction so it can feel challenging, there's a lot of momentum that we built up. So that's what we're doing. Okay? So hopefully that's reasonable for tonight. So, uh, very quickly, yes. Would you say a few words about uh, the structure of the class over the coming weeks? Yes. Is there anything we can read uh, that matches up with the topics that we've Um, discussed? Let me just say this. First, I want to acknowledge it's already two minutes after nine, and so we've already gone over. I'm going to, say, give a one-minute answer. We'll give maybe a one- or two-minute closing. So we'll be here maybe three more minutes to go. But if you really need to go, just please get up and go because we are over the time and don't feel funny about it. But we'll be out of here pretty quick. So quickly, and I'll try to end, be better about ending on time and be respectful of the time uh, in the future. So I, uh, please accept my apology about that. Um, ba- the basic idea, I'm not going to lay out every, I have got it planned out, but the basic idea is next week we're going to 
this was starting. So each week will be self-contained, but it's going to also build. So if you miss some, it's fine. Next week, we're going to uh, take the same, um, continue with what we've done now, these three characteristics, but we're going to really explore a few things like the nature of self and, 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 the, and the models that the Buddha looks at, like to get a handle on this no-self thing. There's this thing, there's, a, there's a, a list called the five aggregates, which is a way of deconstructing ourselves and deconstructing all experience. And then we'll look at what's this idea in Buddhism of liberating the mind. What is this, given, given what we've, everything we've built up then, what is, what is again, we'll come back to what, what enlightenment means. And then, then we'll start to move into now putting it all, laying out the practice, the practical. We're going we're gonna slide, to start sliding a little into the practical after, uh, beginning to the end of next time. And the last three times will be a lot of different the, the practical applications. Some of the things you may have already heard, four foundation, different ways of meditation practice, uh, lots of different things. Some of it you may not have heard four right efforts, there's a whole lot of lists we're going to go through. Eightfold path, four noble truths. Okay. We're going to do a quick ending because it's already five after. So what I'd like to ask you to do is this. This is a little rushed, but that's just the way it is. Take a moment, if you're, I want to invite you to take a moment if you're not already doing so. Mindfully, just check in to the experience in your body. Whatever it is. There may be just a general sense in the body or there may be some specific experiences. Might be pleasant, you might be sleepy and tired, it might be pleasant, unpleasant, you might be hungry, you might feel good, whatever. Notice what's happening in your mind and states of your heart, just your whole experience, mental, emotional, physical. And take a moment to notice how you are relating to your experience. See if there can be a sense of allowing or just letting be, even if it's unpleasant. Just experiment. Sometimes, for whatever's happening in our experience, it's not easy for us to, I'll say, let go around it or let it be or allow and then we have to bring some acceptance to that because that's what's happening, that we can't let go of the struggle. So that's what's happening. Noticing experience, how we're relating to our experience. That place of allowing ourselves to be, or I'll call it a profound place of self-acceptance, is a tremendous act of kindness to ourselves. So often we get in these adversarial relationships with ourselves. We're judging ourselves or beating ourselves up. I should be doing that. And so... The habits are strong. Don't beat yourself up because you beat yourself up, but just to notice. And we just start to learn, can I just let myself be even a little bit? And if I can't, that's teaching you something about your mind. Oh, my mind doesn't let go around that. Wow, I really am hard on myself. And then later we'll talk about compassion practices and things you can do. Finally, I ask you to reflect. I said earlier that you, we've all used our time, I say, wisely this evening. Coming to meditate together, listening to a talk, having some, a little bit of discussion around these Dharma teachings. Anytime we practice in this way or incline ourselves in this way, it's of great benefit for ourselves. It's strengthening those particular conditioned patterns in our mind, even if it's a little bit. But it not only is great benefit for us, it affects everybody we come in contact with. If you live in a way that's less reactive, that's more loving, that's more free, it's, 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 it affects everyone you, you interact with. I say that because when we do these practices, you literally cannot do it for yourself alone. You just can't do it. It's not possible to practice for yourself alone. So both to recognize that, but also to have some appreciation for your own good intention, your own goodness. Or I'll call it the beautiful. That's getting away from kind of typical Dharma language, but I like that word. To reflect on our own beauty, our own goodness. Sometimes it's not easy to see that, but... Uh,
it's a place we don't want to gloss over that. We get plenty of opportunities to look at the, the difficult places that need work. It's equally as important, at least equally important, to, to really come to know the best in us, if, if I can say it that way. And so a traditional way of ending is called the dedication of merit. Um, when I use the word merit, what I mean is all the goodness, the good energy, our good intentions, our good efforts, all that goodness that w- that's come about from our time together this evening. If you like the word merit, that's fine. You can't do it for yourself alone, but we can consciously offer it up for, for all other beings. So it's just a little, it's like a wish. Yeah, maybe it's like a prayer, but think of it as like just an intention in the mind for all the good energies and qualities for all of our good intentions or aspirations, we can say all the merit. May it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. And may all beings everywhere come to an end of suffering. So thank you all for your practice this evening. And perhaps see some of you next week. Um, by the way, in case you're interested, three rings of a bell, three, three refuges, three gems, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, that's why three. So thank you all for your patience for running over time too.